0: Hey, I'm Phoebe. And I'm Ashley. Join us on Early Departures Podcast, where we talk about vacation nightmares. From murders to parasites to freak accidents and more, we cover all the things that could kill you and your vacation. Find us on Instagram at Early Departures Podcast, and listen to a new episode every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to always be safe. And depart on time. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language, So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right, before I get going with this episode, I do have to put out a little bit of a disclaimer. I recorded this episode on Saturday, July 11th. All right, I've been planning it for weeks. My regular listeners know on Facebook and on Instagram and all that stuff. You guys got two Patreon episodes, part one and two, on the life of Elvis Presley. New Patreon subscribers, Terry White, Donna, Emily Hitchcock, Rachie Mama, and Christine Sullivan. Thank you very much for your uh, contributions. I hope you're enjoying the backlog on there. Also, Venmo, Jeff Mills, and Melissa. You can hit me on at MC Podcast there. Thank you very much for those extremely generous donations as well. But I'm putting out a disclaimer because I recorded this episode on Saturday. And this was already planning to be a pretty sad episode. The final 24 hours of Elvis, it's very heartbreaking. It's sad because you see him in a light that you don't want to see him in. You, you don't want to see Elvis like this. You don't want to know about this stuff. You know what I mean? So if you're an Elvis fan and you don't want to hear this, turn this off right now. But the reason I'm putting out a disclaimer is because on Sunday, July 12th, grandson of Elvis Presley, son of Lisa Marie Presley, 27-year-old Benjamin Keough, took his own life. And I was very, very conflicted on putting out this episode I didn't know what to do. I was like, should I go ahead and do this? I mean, it's pre-recorded. All my listeners already knew what I was planning to do. It was supposed to be done in June, to be perfectly honest with you. But in pure Justin fashion here, I always bite off more than I can chew. And going through 600 plus pages of FBI documents is never fun. All right, But I just want to point out, like, I went into my Facebook group. And I straight up asked him, I said, is it going to be in bad taste if I still continue with this episode? Because from day one, I was planning on doing this episode with the utmost respect. That's not even coming from a person who's a huge Elvis fan. I mean, I since I've known his life and I see the impact that he had on pop culture and music and movies and how many people he influenced and all that. Like, yeah, I'm a little bit more of a fan, but I'm not one of those diehard people that collect shit of his. You know, my Spotify doesn't even have any of his music. But I realized that this guy was super important, so it was going to be done with the utmost respect. And then the events of Sunday happened. So like I said, I went into my group and I asked my listeners, I'm like, is it going to be in bad taste if I do this? But the listeners in the group and everybody, they're like, dude, we knew you were planning on doing this. We're n- we know you're going to give like, the, the, as much respect as you can. But use it as a platform to highlight Benjamin Keogh as well. And give him a little bit of respect while you're at it. That would be pretty awesome. So I figured I would. And I, I, basically what I'm getting at is, listen, you do not know what somebody else is going through. Kindness is free, man. Like, be fucking kind to each other. It's not that much to ask. And this right here just goes to show, you could be the grandson of one of the most famous musicians to ever live and still have your own problems and your own personal demons. So don't ever judge anybody for anything other than who they are. Be kind to strangers. Be kind to people. It doesn't take that much effort. It really doesn't. You know, we don't know what that young man was going through. We don't know his personal demons, what he struggled with. We really don't. Lisa Marie was nine years old when she lost her dad, and now she lost her son. And her and her son were best friends. Like, that's honestly some heartbreaking shit. Just absolutely heartbreaking. But I will say this. Like... If you have a friend who you think is having problems, or if you yourself need someone to talk to or reach out to, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. It does not take much to be kind to people. It really doesn't. That shit is free, and it's contagious. It is absolutely contagious when you're kind to people. So I figured I would take a minute to put out that disclaimer. I know my regular listeners are like, you know, like I said, in the comments, they were like, dude, we already know you got this and you're going to do it in a respectful manner. And it was already hard enough talking about the things of Elvis's death that a lot of people don't know. And of course, towards the end, we're going to get into some of the conspiracy theories and some of that bullshit too, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that stuff, but at the end of the day, you know, there's some pretty shocking details about his, his death and everything like that, so my condolences and my sympathies for the, for the Presley family right now, I know none of them are gonna listen to this shit show, but at the same time, like, be kind, you do not know what people are going through, doesn't matter who they vote for it doesn't matter what race they are it doesn't matter what religion they're into be kind you know be kind and with that we're gonna go ahead and get on with the show it was the classic american success story poor boy from small town rises to top the town tupelo mississippi the boy, Elvis Aaron Presley. Presley was taken from his Graceland mansion to Baptist Hospital in Memphis this afternoon. He was transported by ambulance and was described as being in serious condition. Presley died just a short time ago from what hospital officials call respiratory distress. two right. doctors in Memphis now say that Elvis Presley died today as the result of an erratic heartbeat or heart attack brought on by undetermined causes. They say an autopsy shows no evidence of any illegal drugs in his system. Elvis thought that because it was prescribed medication, that it wouldn't hurt him. So here's a man taking a large number of medications, from sleeping pills to painkillers. He'd take sleeping pills, but then he started taking too many of them. And then when he woke up the next day, he'd have to take pills to wake up, you know. I think it went from, I need these to control my life, to these are in control of me. And tonight, a spokesman woman for the Memphis Police Department said detectives were investigating, quote, The strong possibility that Presley's death was a result of an overdose of drugs. The cause of Elvis' death has always raised a lot of questions. I have here the toxicology report, which shows there are staggering nine different prescription drugs in Elvis' body at the time of his death. Elvis took drugs because he liked it. There was no... Everybody thinks that there's some sort of supercilious uh, situation where he would develop this thing of trying to escape anything. He just loved him. He loved drugs. I mean, I'm talking when he would sit and say, and I'd sit down and I'd say, Elvis, you don't need to take all this shit. He said, I need it. When a person has that mentality, there is no way you can stop it. News that Elvis Presley is dead at the age of 42 it was a severely irregular heartbeat. No drugs involved, they say. The drugs were in control. Whether you're black or white, whether you're country, redneck, or freak, young or old, from Moscow, London, or Memphis, Elvis Presley will still be the king of rock and roll. Alright everybody, before we get going, I have to give a huge belated... Birthday shout-out to Rachel Ross. I was supposed to do this an episode ago, and I totally forgot. So my apologies, and I hope you had a kick-ass birthday, Rachel. And also, citing a couple sources here, liveabout.com, elvisdaily.com, ElvisInfoNet, and a book called Elvis Decoded, A Fan's Guide to Deciphering the Myths and Misinformation and it's uh, by Patrick Lacey and also, if you want to check out the 663 pages of the FBI files on Elvis Presley dated from 1956 to 1980, those are also available online and you can check those out as well for those of you who aren't on Patreon, who didn't get a chance to hear the, the two part series about Elvis's life on there check this out When Elvis went into the Army in about 1958, from 1958 to 1960, that's when Elvis first started developing his habit of pills. One story that I heard was that he had a huge sleepwalking problem. And when he went to the Army, which just so people know, he actually got offered a deferment because he was an entertainer. And he turned the deferment down and he said that he wanted to serve his country just like anybody else. When he got into the army, the army's like, listen, bro, we can set you in this office, you know, and you don't have to worry about anything. You can just coast for this two years. And Elvis is like, no, I want to be treated like everybody else. So, he wanted to be in a tank. So that's what they, that's where they put him. Uh, He was, he, he was definitely into it. He did live off base, but he was also extremely generous while he was in the army. He would buy you know, TVs for the whole base, he would, you know, fly people's family to and from Germany or Texas when he was stationed there, I mean, he was an extremely generous guy, and this is from people who were in the military with him as well, but Elvis had this fear that when he was in the army, he was going to sleepwalk. So he started taking sleeping pills. So he would sleep a lot harder and not do that. But then he would wake up groggy and have to do his, you know, regular stuff. And they would give him some amphetamines to perk him up a little bit and keep him going throughout the day. So he started getting into this really bad cycle. And this continued on through the 60s. All right. Now, in about 1973... I want to say 72, 73, somewhere around there is when it started getting really, really bad. That's uh, right about in 74 is when you start seeing him put on a lot of weight. The dude had a spastic colon, he had, which was extremely painful for him. I mean, he was on uppers, downers, painkillers, everything. Seeing his life and learning about his life has made me more of an Elvis fan. I will say that my regular listeners know I wasn't the hugest Elvis fan, but after realizing like what he went, like Elvis got turned down a lot before he got any kind of record deal. And he, you know, it wasn't like automatic, like, don't get me wrong. You gotta, you gotta put this into perspective real quick. Okay. By the time Elvis was 21 years old, imagine being 20, 21 years old. He was a full blown movie star Andy was a full-blown rock star. Both. Not just one or the other, but both. This dude, by the end of his days, he was tired of being Elvis. And I'd heard that from several sources during interviews that they would give and several articles that I read. You know, little tidbits here and there. He was tired of being famous. He didn't want to do that shit anymore. He just wanted to live, but by that point it was too late. I also learned that Elvis had a lot of enablers. Nobody told this guy no. There's a story of him going to a pharmacist's house. Because the pharmacy was closed, he went to the guy's house. And basically walked in there, pushed him out of the way. The guy, Elvis had a freaking pill book. You know, he knew exactly what he was looking for in the medicine cabinet when it came to pills, okay? And obviously they played a huge factor in his death. Elvis also had one of those pill books. Like, he could tell you what every pill did and what he needed and what he wanted, and there was nobody to tell this guy no. Absolutely nobody. And it's extremely sad when you get to the end of his life. You know, that being said, it's a quick little recap, you know, a couple minutes long or whatever. But we are going to start off with the day before. On Monday, August 15th at about 4 p.m., Elvis wakes up at his usual time, which is usually between 4 and 7 p.m. Uh, he spent the evening, you know, watching TV, playing with his daughter, Lisa Marie, who was nine at the time. And, you know, kind of going back and forth with uh, his girlfriend, Ginger Alden. At 10.30 p.m., he went to a dentist appointment. He went to his dentist. His name was Lester Hoffman. And Elvis gets home from his dentist appointment between midnight and 12.30 a.m. on Tuesday, August 16th. And a fun little side fact, as he drove his car into Graceland, you know, he's waving at fans. There were literally fans outside this dude's house 24-7. 24-7. A guy named Robert Call from Indiana took the very last picture of Elvis alive. That's just a little side fact for you. So, he gets home roughly right about midnight, okay, from his dentist appointment. And, uh yeah, he was with his girlfriend, Ginger. And uh at 2.15 a.m., Elvis calls Dr. Nick, okay, to tell him one of his teeth is hurting. He needed some Dilaudid. So, Dr. Nick prescribed him six tablets. And Dilaudid is a uh, sedative, all right? Dr. Nick prescribes him six tablets, and Elvis asks a guy named Ricky Stanley, to pick them up at Baptist Memorial All-Night Pharmacy. So at about 4 a.m., Elvis wakes up his first cousin, Billy Smith, and his wife, Joe. And uh, he wants to play a game of racquetball with them. So once Billy gets there, it had been raining all day, and this is um, a story that Billy told, When Billy arrives, it had been raining all day long, and Billy told Elvis he wanted the rain to stop, just kind of offhand mentioning it. And uh, Elvis says, ain't no problem, I'll take care of it. And he placed his hands out, and the rain just kind of stopped. And then Billy says that Elvis turned to the others and said that uh, he had like this grin on his face, and he said, if you have a little faith, you can stop anything. I thought that was a pretty cool little story right there so Elvis Presley as usual he you know they they play this game of racquetball and Elvis he's not getting around very well okay he's pretty badly overweight at this point all right you know he kind of uh, goes to you know playfully hit Billy with one of the balls and when he does that Elvis actually hits himself with the racket and he uh, hit himself in the leg and he called the game off and then Uh, Then they all headed into the next room and Elvis wanted to play a couple songs. So Elvis gets on a nearby piano and he plays two uh, gospel songs along with a song called Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. And for those of you who do not know that song, it is a great, great, amazing song. Personally, I'm a fan of Willie Nelson's version. But if you haven't heard it, check that song song out. It's very, very good. At 5 a.m., about a half an hour later, Elvis decides to, you know, turn in early, which is for him. He used to, he usually goes to bed at about 7 a.m. or so. All right, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. is when he goes to bed. Well, he decides to go to bed at about 5 a.m. and uh, he goes up to his bedroom with with his fiance Ginger, and uh, he takes one of his prepackaged little packets of pills that his doctor would give him uh, to take twice a day. Like he had these two little packets. Elvis was given the first packet of prescription drugs, and what it consisted of was secondol, which is a sedative, Placidil, which is a sedative, Valmid, which is a sedative, Tuanol, which is a sedative hypnotic, Demerol, which is very similar to morphine. It is a very addictive. And, uh, and then he had also more... Of an assortment of other depressants and placebos. A bunch of downers. Because Elvis had problems sleeping. And he did that so he could sleep like a set amount of constant hours every night. So a couple hours later at 7am Elvis was still awake. Okay so he calls, uh, calls Ricky who brings him his second packet of pills. 8am Elvis still can't sleep. So he asks for a third packet of pills, but he calls down for that packet and nobody could find uh, Ricky, which kind of pissed off Elvis because Ricky was supposed to be on duty until noon because Elvis had people to wait on him hand and foot. So his nurse, Tish Henley, she had already gone to work. So Elvis had his aunt, a woman by the name of Delta Mae Biggs, call her, call his nurse at Dr. Nick's office. And after they sat there and talked for a minute, Tish ended up giving Delta the third packet, which was made up of two Valmids and two Placidil placebo pills. When Delta went into Elvis' bedroom, he did tell her that he was planning to get up around 7 p.m. So at 9.30 a.m., Elvis, who still can't sleep at this point after consuming a lot of pills, tells Ginger he's going to the bathroom to read. Elvis takes his book that he's been reading and it's a book called The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus by Frank Adams and he goes into the bathroom and Ginger says don't fall asleep in there because he would be in the bathroom for so long he would sometimes nod off and fall asleep and uh, Elvis replies back okay I won't and then Ginger proceeds to go back to sleep so at 1.30 p.m. Ginger wakes up and rolls over and she kind of felt that Elvis was not in bed with her and then she fell back asleep for a few minutes. Now once she was awake, she calls her mom and her mom asks how Elvis was. Ginger said she had no idea. So then Ginger proceeds to get dressed and put on her makeup. Then she walked over to Elvis's bathroom door and she kind of knocked on it softly and called Elvis's name and she got no answer, and then she pushed the door open, and that's when she discovers Elvis lying on the floor, and uh, his pajama bottoms were, you know, at the bottom of his feet, and he was forward, his face buried in a pool of vomit in uh, in the shag carpet, so Ginger is in shock at this point. So she calls downstairs and she speaks to the person on duty, which was a guy named Al Strada. She thought at first that Elvis had fallen over and hit his head. You know, she didn't realize the severity of it. So Al comes up. She was pretty frantic, okay? So Al comes up and he's bending over Elvis when Joe Esposito, a longtime friend of Elvis's and a member of the Memphis Mafia, which, when I say Memphis Mafia, for those people not familiar, that's what Elvis's entourage was called. We're not talking about the actual Mafia. But, Joe Esposito comes running up the stairs and into the bathroom, okay? So, him and Al, they get Elvis's body turned over. And Joe Esposito tried to do CPR, tried to give him mouth-to-mouth. Everything started, it was chaos right then. Elvis's dad, Vernon, comes into the bathroom. They said that his face just went into fear and he starts crying out like, Oh God, son, please don't go. Please don't die. And Joe Esposito is working really, really hard on Elvis still. But everybody kind of knew what was happening right now, okay? By this time, Elvis's face was swollen. It was purplish. His tongue was discolored, it was out of his mouth, his eyes were bloodshot completely. And this part is so, this part is so sad. While they're all in the bathroom, there's about ten people in there at this point in time, okay? Elvis's nine-year-old daughter, Lisa Marie, shows up at the door and sees everybody in there and her dad on the floor. And she says, What's wrong with my daddy? And Ginger hurries up and closes the door on her. And then Lisa Marie yells, something is wrong with my daddy and I'm going to find out. So she starts running towards the second ba- bathroom door because there were two doors on Elvis's bathroom. But they had already locked that other door so she couldn't get in. They're trying to keep her away from all this right now. You know, nine-year-old girl don't need to see her dad like that or anybody for that matter. You know what I mean? And this is within, this doesn't take long. This is within a matter of a couple minutes, okay? And then Al Strada and Joe Esposito call an ambulance at this point. Two firemen EMTs show up. And uh, they had an ambulance from uh, the engine house number 29 in Whitehaven, which is just a few minutes from Graceland. They show up and uh, they said it was just chaos in there they there they said there's 10 people in here they're all screaming and crying for somebody to help elvis the two ambulance men looked at the body and they knew that they couldn't help him they were told by al strada he thinks elvis might have overdosed the ambulance drivers just kind of nodded at him you know there were no vital signs and they were pretty sure that no outcome was gonna be good. Two people named Joe and Charlie Hodge. They helped the ambulance crew put Elvis into a stretcher. They carried him downstairs and into the ambulance. And Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, is still crying. He was trying to get into the van with them and they they held him back. And he's crying out that whole time he's he's yelling at the at the ambulance, you know. I'll be there soon, you know, yelling at his at his son. He's I'll be there soon. Now before the ambulance left Graceland, Doctor Nick came in through the gates, and he ended up jumping in the back, and he started working on Elvis, and was yelling, "Breathe, Elvis! Come on, breathe for me." And Doctor Nick was working so hard on Elvis's body that the ambulance men said he had a look on his face like he couldn't believe that Elvis Presley could die. And to be honest with you, like the world couldn't believe this guy could die. So at 2.56 p.m., 22 minutes after the initial call, Elvis Presley arrives at the Baptist Medical Center in Memphis, Tennessee. He goes into trauma room number one, which they had already prepared, and they had a team of doctors and resuscitation experts standing by waiting. But there was nothing they could do. And um, they all eventually stopped by mutual consent. And at just about 3 p.m., about five minutes after arriving at the hospital, Elvis was pronounced dead. Dr. Nick goes and walks into trauma room number two, where Joe and Charlie and a couple of the other Memphis Mafia boys, and they were standing there waiting. And Dr. Nick walks in and says... It's all over. He's gone. And everybody starts crying. And Charlie Hodge, he goes to run from the room, but Joe Esposito just kind of held him back because they needed to remain at the hospital and they had to keep their shit together because they still had to tell the world that Elvis Presley was dead, okay? So Joe Esposito first calls Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, and the guy who ran Elvis into the ground, all right? And at first he was shocked, you know? But then Tom Parker was just like, all right, back to business. What do we do? Like, funeral, blah, blah, blah. You know, what are we going to do? So then Joe calls Priscilla, who is Elvis's ex-wife. And when she hears the news, she drops the phone. And she was very shocked. But at the same time, you know, Lisa Marie was, was with Elvis at the time, so you know, she kept asking, how is she doing, you know, is, is she okay? And Joe told her, you know, hey, Lisa's fine, you know, but you need to come to Memphis now. So Dr. Nick goes back to Graceland and he had to tell Vernon Presley the news. And he was worried that the shock of Elvis's death would actually kill Vernon Presley. Um, he had already had one heart attack at this point. So, Dr. Nick asked Vernon's doctor to come with him just to be on the safe side. They arrived back at Graceland. He walked into the room where Lisa Marie was crying with with Vernon. Vernon saw the bag of Elvis' personal effects in Dr. Nick's hands. And uh, he just cried out, no, 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 he's gone. And Dr. Nick walked over to Vernon and bent down and said, I'm so sorry, you know. Vernon just... You know, he's like, what am I going to do? Everything is gone. That's what Vernon said. And uh at this point, Lisa Marie starts running around the house and just crying. Just, my daddy is gone. My daddy's gone. You know, Ginger is still in shock and she's crying. What she did was she took Lisa into an empty room and just kind of sat with her there until Priscilla ended up arriving. And for those of you who don't know, like, Elvis lost his mother very early on she died very young as well and vernon had lost one son who was um a stillborn who was elvis's twin and he had all you know lost his wife as well and now now elvis is is gone too and then it comes down to telling the world about this news so joe charlie and a guy named maurice elliott who was a hospital administrator they stood in this small room All this press watching and and waiting and everything like that. And Joe Esposito tries to speak and nothing comes out of his mouth. He's just dead silent. And he was just too upset. And Charlie couldn't say anything either because he was still in shock and super upset. So Maurice Elliott has to be the one to basically tell the world, you know, that Elvis Presley is dead. So when Joe and Charlie arrive back to Graceland... By this time, fans were standing outside and crying. Inside, Vernon was still crying. He's saying, you know, my baby's dead. They've taken him. He's gone. My baby's dead. Then Joe and Charlie arrive, like I said. And then the medical investigators show up as well. One of which being Sam Thompson. He took the upstairs and unlocked Elvis' bedroom door. They went into, and then they went into the study. Scattered on couches, which went around the perimeter of the room was an assortment of teddy bears and they were facing the huge desk, you know, with a, with a place card reading, uh, Elvis Presley, the boss and the walls were covered in leather, uh, or hide. They're not sure, you know, they had all kinds of shit in there. Um, there was an empty syringe on the desk that they found, One of the investigators, named Warlick, walked past the desk and out of the office den into the bedroom. On the far wall, he spotted two or three TV sets that were, uh, you know, in some bookcases. And then he saw, you know, the biggest king-size bed he's ever seen in his life. And then on top of the one bookcase, Warlick found another empty syringe. And it was just like the one that he had found in the study. So Warlick immediately ordered the death scene to be secured. So when he walks into the bathroom, there's a throw rug in front of the, the black toilet. There's another TV in the bathroom. There were two telephones in there. There was an intercom that was mounted next to the uh, toilet paper dispenser. There were also a couple armchairs around the bathroom. There was a circular shower that was about seven feet in diameter. He had a vinyl chair in the middle of the shower and to the right of the doorway was a 12 foot long light marble counter with a built in purple sink. When he goes over to the counter Warlick sees what looks like a black doctor's bag with a uh, big flap folding down and uh, with the latch in the front and inside was a bunch of tiny black plastic drawers which uh, all of them were empty. And then he goes to the medical cabinets and all of those are empty as well. And the thing is, is there was no evidence of any common household remedies in the bathroom whatsoever. And Warlick at this point had been doing his job for four years and and he's like, you know, this was the first time I've ever seen a total absence of medications, prescriptions and non-prescriptions in a home. You know, he's like it was wiped clean. And the only thing that um did appear to be missing aside from like empty syringes was the the book that Elvis was reading when he died. Now, when Warlick goes into the bathroom, he finds a book that was the study of sex and psychic energy that correlated sexual positions with astrological signs, um, which is a far cry different from what was originally said he went into the bathroom with. And he also noticed where Elvis had thrown up in front of where he was seated, you know, right near the toilet. And he said, uh, he said it looked like Elvis had stumbled or crawled several feet before he died. Now, by the time Warlick had gotten back to the hospital just before 7 p.m., the autopsy was about to start. Now, although he had no formal role in the proceedings, Dr. Nick's presence as an observer underscored the fact that Elvis' death was from unknown circumstances and possibly even unnatural causes. That would almost be examined as a private, but not a public matter. Now, at the time, the Attorney General's office, okay, is trying to tell them to move Elvis' body to the city's hospital, which is across the street. Now, if the body had been moved, the coroner could operate under official state. But instead, all he had was the consent form that he had gotten from Vernon Presley. So then nine people at Baptist Memorial conducted the examination. They all knew that the the entire world was waiting for the results of this, okay? But at the end of the day, they knew the person who was going to get the results of this autopsy was going to be Elvis's father. But the thing about it was, is people would want to know how Elvis Presley died, so they could not fuck this up. So Shelby County Medical Examiner Jerry Francisco and Dr. Nick held a press conference an hour later at 8 p.m., and this is where they read out the results of the autopsy, even though the autopsy was still going on at this time. And they said that Elvis Presley died from cardiac arrhythmia, due to an undetermined heartbeat even though the autopsy was still going on for a few more hours after this they collected a bunch of specimens they were carefully preserved the internal organs were examined and the heart was found to be enlarged so they found a significant amount of coronary atherosclerosis okay and then the liver showed considerable damage and the large intestine was clogged with fecal matter which indicated a very painful and long standing bowel condition the bowel condition alone would have strongly suggested what you know the doctors suspected at this point but you also had elvis's hospital history you had the uh, the liver damage you had the anecdotal evidence okay the drug use was heavily implicated in the anticipated death of Elvis okay he had no known history of heart disease and he had been mobile and functional within eight hours of his death it was possible that he could have died while straining while he was on the toilet um, but they couldn't rule out the possibility of shock which would have been brought on by the codeine pills he had gotten off the dentist The thing is, is he had a mild allergy to codeine, which was a known thing. So the pathologists, they were pretty satisfied with waiting for the lab results. Okay, they were, they were confident this would overrule Dr. Francisco's ruling or whatever. There was no disagreement, in fact, between the laboratory reports and analysis filed, which was two months later, You know, with each of them stating a strong belief that the primary cause of death was polypharmacy. And the Bioscience Laboratory's report initially filed under the patient name of Ethel Moore, which indicated the detection of 14 drugs in Elvis's system. Ten of which was in a significant quantity. Codeine appeared at ten times the therapeutic level. He had taken Quaaludes as well. And the combined effect of the central nervous system depressants and the codeine had been given, you know, a lot of consideration in the cause of death. Okay, so Doctor Francisco and the medical examiner's office would. Both stick to their original diagnosis, and the debate over Elvis' death still went on. It still goes on. Okay, there have been lawsuits, there have been legislative actions, there have been medical disbarments and reinstatements, attempts to blame other people, denial, reconsideration. This is just several, several stories about Elvis' death and getting the official records out. You look at Elvis' last five years while he's alive. He had a huge dependency on medications. And he could get as much as he wanted whenever he wanted. He had a team of doctors that would literally give this dude whatever, whenever. He had nobody to tell him no. And that's pretty much the last 24 hours of Elvis' life and a little bit of details on his death. Alright, here's where we start getting into some of the fun stuff. Okay? Trust me, I had a great time looking into this shit. Now, a lot of this info comes from Elvisinfo.net. Or Elvisinfo.net. It's literally thousands of pages of Elvis conspiracy shit. It is fucking ridiculous. Okay, so let's check this out. These are the top reasons that people believe Elvis is alive. One, the infamous... Body in the coffin photo. It's clearly not the king, according to a lot of fans, because of the shape of his nose, the eyebrow arch, and the confession from a hairdresser who claims she glued a loose sideburn on the corpse because it kept falling down. Well, here's the deal. The hairdresser that Elvis had wasn't a she, it was a guy, and he's actually the very last person to touch Elvis. I cannot remember his name right off the top of my head, but there's a few uh, documentaries where they interview him and talk to him, and he tells a story. He's the one who did Elvis's hair for the, the viewing, okay? Now, it has also been suggested that because Elvis had a fascination with numerology, he used it to pick his death day. Here's an example. August 16th, 1977. The numerical significance. 8 plus 16 plus 1977 equals 2001. Thus spake Zarathustra, which is the theme music from the movie 2001, was Elvis's theme song. There have also been a number of family and friends who have done interviews who have slipped up through the years, and they were caught. Fans always notice whenever Elvis' daughter, Lisa Marie, has on more than one occasion refused to answer questions pertaining to her father's death or anything to do with it. You literally just heard the story of Lisa Marie and her father's death. She has every fucking right to not want to talk about it or answer questions about it. How could that woman not be traumatized at 9 years old? I can remember shit when I was 9 years old. That probably fucked her up a little bit. So let's move on to Elvis, having reportedly done some odd things about 6 months before his death in March of 1977. First off... He cashed out three life insurance policies, totaling $2 million. He also opened a new checking account with Easy Access, depositing half of that cash. Might be a little bit odd. Following his death and funeral, a fan taking photos of Elvis Presley's gravesite captured the pool house in the backyard. Later, after developing the film, he noticed a man's shape in the window. He blew up the photo and discovered the man resembles Elvis very, very uh, closely. Now, one of the weird things about this photo is, is on this website, there's actually a link to check out this photo, okay? The photo has actually been removed, which is kind of weird. You know what I'm saying? I don't really understand that, but the yeah, the photo has been removed. I, uh, I didn't really look... it very hard because like i'm into conspiracy shit but at a certain point in time i'm not going to dig for for a photo of somebody that looks eerily like elvis in a in a you know a pool house now check this out too as of today there is still one remaining life insurance policy in elvis presley's name that has not yet been cashed in at this point in time elvis would roughly be 85 years old with his health the way it was, even if Elvis faked his death. I don't think he would make it to the age of 85 at this point. I really, really don't. I could be wrong, but let's put all that into perspective, okay? Elvis Presley's autopsy records have also been sealed for all of these years, and they are not to be opened until 2027, which will be the 50th anniversary of his death. So here in about seven years, seven years and one month, you will actually get to see the autopsy records of Elvis Presley because they will be released to the public. Here's another crazy one. Some people think that Elvis's brother was actually a double for him and that his brother didn't die at birth and the family kept him a secret so he could be his double later on in life. Let's just think about that conspiracy for one, one second, okay? First of all, when Elvis is born, nobody knew he was going to be fucking famous, alright? Let's just, let's just throw that out there. So there's really no logic to this conspiracy theory, but I shit you not, there are some people who do believe this. So let's move on to one of the grander conspiracy theories involving Elvis' death, which is the Illuminati. Elvis was a programmed slave of the Illuminati, is what they say, and Hollywood and the music industry are big mind control centers used by the Illuminati to influence us in ways that suit their goals. You know, everybody is influenced in different ways, you know, makes sense. People look up to and admire certain artists and movie stars and musicians, especially in the formative years of like teenagers and early teens. There's a book by two guys named Fritz Springmeier and Cisco Wheeler, and it's called The Illuminati Formula Used to Create an Undetectable Total Mind-Controlled Slave. They're saying that the music industry, and country music industry spe- especially, has a bunch of artists who work as mind-control programmers, and many of them are mind-control slaves with split personalities. They go on to mention Chris Christofferson, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Willie Nelson are all programmers, and they work for the Illuminati. It's, it goes on to say that many of the artists are themselves programmed to be able to act in a way the Illuminati wants, to, quote-unquote, spread the message. Okay, let's talk about Willie Nelson for a second. If there is somebody who I would never suspect of being an Illuminati programmer, it is Willie Nelson. I just, that one doesn't really sit with me very well, because it just makes zero sense, people, okay? So basically they said, The rock industry started programming Elvis Presley, who was more than likely programmed by his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. And uh, this is actually an excerpt from the book by Springmeyer and Wheeler. It's in chapter 12 and it says, quote, many of the movies and shows use monarch slaves as actors and performers such as Roseanne Barr, Bette Midler, Marilyn Monroe, Loretta Lynn, Crystal Gale, and possibly Wayne Newton, who was a child singing prodigy. Who never wrote a check for himself in his life. They also use lots of slave handlers such as Frank Sinatra, Peter Lawford, and Bob Hope, and occasionally they use programmers such as Anton LaVey and Jerry Lee Lewis. End quote. So, Cisco, who is one of the co authors of this book, while in the Illuminati, was given repeated reason to believe that Elvis Presley was also a multiple programmed by the Illuminati. We know that at times he went by code names, one of which is publicly known as John Burroughs. One of the things that they state in here is some of the things that the Memphis Mafia has said. And like I said, the Memphis Mafia is Elvis's entourage. At certain times, they have talked about Elvis's ability to go into altered states of consciousness, even at some points seeming dead. Now, apparently, a different Illuminati slave at one point stated that Elvis was an Illuminati slave and Cisco points out that Elvis's twin brother was dead at birth and that Elvis knew that this gave him double spiritual power. And this is something that the Illuminati believes. I will say this though, for those of you who heard part one and part two of Elvis's life, Elvis's mom actually did believe that. And she did feed that into Elvis as well. You know, this basically meant that Elvis was going to be double special and like Elvis believed this as well, which is, you know, kind of kind of odd. Okay, I will say that. Now, the thing about it is, is they go on to say in their book, the Illuminati will often kill a twin so that the other will get the power of two souls. And from what they understand, Elvis Presley's handler and programmer was Colonel Tom Parker, and that Elvis belonged to a team of four Illuminati men. Now, Elvis is publicly known to have studied yoga, numerology, he was very into drugs and studied them extensively and he received new age spiritual training in an academy overlooking Pasadena, California. All well, those are all true, he is also into karate. Uh, very into karate, actually, to the point where when he got his black belt certificate, he carried it around in his wallet until he died. Like, he was very into that shit. So, uh you know, some weird stuff there, okay? They also go on to say he was an active member in the Theosophical Society. And after Elvis Presley supposedly died, the Sun International Corporation came out with an Elvis Presley album called Orion. With a winged sun disk on its cover, and the winged sun disk is an important Egyptian magical symbol used by the OTO or the Theosophical Society. Now, this big figure named May Boren Axton, okay, who was known as the Grand Dame of Nashville, played a vital role in Elvis Presley's life, okay, and to be honest with you. I really didn't see much of her anywhere in uh in my research. I could have missed that, could have been wrong. But um basically they say that Elvis and the Beatles were chosen by the Illuminati to introduce rock and roll to the United States. Elvis and the Beatles had a lot of musical talent and Elvis was very close friends with Wayne Newton, okay, who is like I said, also suspected of being an Illuminati slave. Elvis also worked with Burt Reynolds and Jerry Lee Lewis, who also connect in with the Illuminati's mind cro- control operations. I swear I can't even make this shit up. Okay, the uh <laughs> now the two authors of this book, Springmire and Cisco, are honestly puzzled why Elvis' grave, which had millions of dollars spent on its security, had his name misspelled. They are also puzzled why Elvis, who repeatedly stated he wanted to be buried beside his mother, is buried beside his father, who he privately stated wasn't even his real father. Why no one? They're also puzzled why no one ever tried to collect the insurance on Elvis' death. But uh the two authors believe that some of the people in the Illuminati know the true story about Elvis Presley. They also know for sure that Colonel Tom Parker would know because he was Elvis's mind control programmer and handler. Now, if you listen to the two-part series, we talked about Elvis's name, and to be perfectly honest with you, um, he did drop the extra A off his middle name at one point because it was basically like a tribute For him to acknowledge his brother who did die at birth, which, like I said, it was kind of odd, I will say that, but uh, there's not much factual shit going in this argument. Like, EIN, the, the website, actually went through this and discredited a bunch of this shit and they actually said that and this is a quote from them not me it said uh, had the authors done their homework they would have quickly realized that millions of dollars were not spent on security for his gravesite and that there was no real conspiracy around the spelling of Aaron a a r o n compared to a r o n and non-existent life insurance policy both of which were explainable in a very easy way and that the authors also use Qualifiers such as it seems and we believe which would strongly suggest they are uncertain and lack the courage of their argument which is a hell of a good point because apparently in this book they do say those quite a bit and uh, when you don't have courage in your argument. This is the difference between a hypothesis and a theory. A hypothesis is a random idea. It's like, uh, okay, I have this idea, but I have no evidence or facts to back it up. A theory is basically an advanced hypothesis that's like, okay, I have a little bit of factual evidence. I do have a little bit of this. I do have the... Shit to back up my theory. You know, that's the difference between a hypothesis and a theory. Like, we can throw around hypotheses, like, all fucking day. Okay? Like, it is what it is. Alright, further going on, okay? A lot of people bring up Elvis's autopsy. And why it's so secret. And why it was, there was all these lawsuits. And people getting disbarred. And all this other shit. And basically, in 1994, a guy named Dr. Joseph Davis was a coroner, and he was engaged to investigate the circumstances of Elvis's death. Like I said, this case was reopened in 1994, okay, and this is an email that was sent, and it was uh, allowed to be made public, and this is what he says, okay, the core legal problem that clouds the Elvis Presley death investigation started with the circumstances of the autopsy, There is no doubt his death was sudden and not expected by anyone, including physicians who were familiar with him. Yes, this should have been a medical examiner case investigation total. Due to his fame and the fact that high-profile cases encourage knee-jerk reactions from uh, officialdom, his definitely dead body was removed from the death site, transported to the hospital where he was eventually pronounced dead. The second step in clouding the issue was the medical personnel at the hospital not notifying the medical examiner that he had a case to investigate. Instead, Elvis Presley's father, Vernon, the legal next of kin, was asked for autopsy permission to be performed by the hospital pathology group. By the time that Dr. Francisco, the medical examiner, found out it was too late to transport the body to his office for a medical examiner autopsy, the streets were already filling up with the curious... Never having experienced such circumstances before, Dr. Francisco elected to go across the street and observe the autopsy. He also sent his office investigator to the death site to find out details. By observing a private autopsy, he did not abrogate his medical examiner responsibility to issue the death certificate. Armed with the Terminal Event Circumstances at the death site plus the observation of the private autopsy he issued the official death certificate. The law in Tennessee exempts a not performed by medical examiner autopsy, which would be a private autopsy from uh, public records law. It would be a violation of law for anyone involved to release the autopsy findings, without permission of the legal next of kin. There were leaks, but these cannot be verified by comparison with original records, which are locked in a separate place within the hospital. All was good until a county commissioner in Memphis, with his own political agenda, accused Dr. Francisco of falsifying the death certificate, which is a crime. The authorities of Tennessee were obligated to investigate my role, was to answer one question, did Dr. Francisco falsify the death certificate? After reviewing records, the autopsy, and microscopic slides and photographs, I wrote an extensive report to the officials. I answered their question, Dr. Francisco did not falsify the death certificate. In order to explain the rationale for my answer to their question, I wrote an extensive detailed analysis of the case and submitted it. I requested that the Attorney General of the State of Tennessee make that report of mine public, which I could not because it was a performance by me as a consultant and not a medical examiner of Tennessee. If he could, that was his judgment call. However, He could not without being in violation of the law that exempts private autopsies from the public records law. So that is why I wrote it sealed. As to the brain examination during the private autopsy, I would expect that such was done if the autopsy were classified as a complete autopsy. If the next of kin has specifically excluded a head content examination, The pathologist would have had to honor that request. My best guess is that they performed a complete autopsy. Otherwise, speculation would remain that he had suffered a stroke, which was never a question as far as I remember. then he goes on to say, well, that's all for now. Joseph H. Davis, MD. That basically explains the whole autopsy and death certificate shit, okay? So here's another one. Some people do believe that Elvis was connected to the actual Mafia. And this is a theory brought forth by Gail Brewer-Giorgio, who is the author of a 1988 best-selling book called Is Elvis Alive? And she's the one who says that Elvis faked his death because he had to escape the Mafia. Now she says that she poured through thousands of FBI documents to come to this conclusion that Elvis Presley was an American hero who had to go into witness protection. She says, Do I know Elvis is alive today? No, I don't know. But I know he didn't die on August 16th. So Brewer Giorgio goes on to say, The FBI enlisted Presley as an undercover agent in 1976 to help the agency infiltrate a criminal organization called The Fraternity, which was apparently made up of dozens of racketeers. Elvis Presley volunteered because he did love America and he had respect for the FBI, which for those of you who listen to part one and two, he did have a thing with badges and guns and he did actually love America quite a bit. So like, yeah, it's kind of half true. All right. So she goes on to say that the agency had approached Elvis Presley because a member of the fraternity had apparent dealings with Elvis over the cell of an airplane that Elvis had. But when Presley was found to be a mole, he was put into the witness protection program. She goes on and cites that this is evidence that she had collected from FBI documents and interviews. For those of you in my Facebook group, I literally posted the 663 pages of those documents. You are more than welcome to join the group and go through them if you'd like. They are very easy to find. She goes on to say, Elvis faked his death because he was going to be killed and there was no doubt about it. Now... Obviously, the FBI never commented on the uh, on the old claim, you know. There are about 100 pages missing from the FBI files. That is kind of odd right there. I will say that. But they did release 663 pages of it. And they are dated from the years 1956 to 1980. Which is three years after Elvis' death. Now, the thing about it is... The FBI never really investigated Elvis Presley, okay? At least from what we can see with that 660 pages. He did have a huge portfolio, though. Like, or not a portfolio, but a dossier, I guess you could call it. And the thing about it was, the documents that they released were because Elvis was getting, you know, extorted. Like, not extorted, Elvis. There were people attempting to extort Elvis, From like 1956 and 1950, like as soon as he hit it big, there are people trying to extort the shit out of this guy, trying to blackmail him, trying to do whatever they could to get money out of him, right? Now, according to the FBI memo, I will say this, Elvis did speak very favorably when he came to FBI headquarters in 1971, spoke favorably of the Bureau, and offered his services in any way, and that's a direct quote, that is from an FBI memo. There is also mention of, of Elvis Presley's plane and a business arrangement involving the aircraft. But Elvis experts say that the docket lacks evidence suggesting that Presley is alive. Now, the guy who wrote the book that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Elvis Decoded, the author Patrick Lacey, goes on to say... Those FBI files are available to the public. I have them. There's nothing in there. All of the evidence points to a death. The medical evidence, the eyewitness reports. To have him fake his own death would have required the silence and the services of literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people over this course of years. And I do have to agree with that. So, that is pretty much the end of the conspiracy theories. I mean... I can go ahead and mention him getting abducted by aliens or something, but I'm just, I mean, let's let's try to keep it as, as logical as we can here, people. But, um, you know, I do have a lot of reviews to read, but I'm going to save those for the next episode. So, if you do enjoy the podcast, go leave me a five-star review, because uh, I do have a couple bad reviews to read on the next episode. So, I'm going to leave you with... Some quotes of Elvis's friends talking about him. That's how I'm going to end this episode as opposed to ending it with reviews. I thought that would be a really cool thing and I, I think it would help you see the what the people had to say about him that knew him and that were around him all the time. I think that would be a really good thing. But um, how you can get a hold of me social media wise, email justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on uh, Instagram at Mysterious underscore podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Podcast MC. You can stop by the Facebook page like that. You can uh, join the group. Just make sure you answer the questions or you will not fucking get in there. All right. So uh, I suppose with all that behind us, let's go ahead and end this on a on a high note. He had his problems, he had his demons, he was definitely not a perfect guy by any means. You know, there was controversy around him more than once, but he literally did change the face of music. And he was probably the hugest person just all around the world. Like, this guy never stepped foot, you know, well, I mean, he did step foot in Germany over in, in Europe, but he never played one concert in Europe. Actually, he played I think two shows in Canada. Other than that, he only played shows in in America. And for this guy to have the impact he had around the world is something to behold. It is honestly amazing. It really is. So, you know, much respect and much love. I'm I'm a lot bigger Elvis fan now. I am. Are you Are you satisfied with the image you've established? Uh, uh, well, the image is one thing, and a human being is another, you know, so. How close does it come? How close does the image come to the man? It's, 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 it's very hard to live up to an image, I'll put it that way. Elvis had millions of uh, friends and family, and, but uh, you can be around a lot of people and still be lonely. You go to the house sometime and talk to him, it's, a, it's pitiful. He said, I got all this stuff here, but I'd just like to go back to three pieces again and play and have fun. He didn't want to be Elvis after a while. He said, I'm getting so tired of being Elvis. That's what he told me. I was angry about his death. Elvis, I thought he had no right to die. I thought he had no right to die at that age. Uh, I think that he left too much on the table. If anybody ever left too much on the table, Elvis did. still get very pissed off about it you know it took a while I didn't get pissed off right away I was too hurt too confused too frustrated over not being able to do anything to stop it and I get pissed off with the people that helped contribute to it but I get pissed off at Elvis it was a smart man he knew what he was doing but he denied it maybe he really couldn't see any way out of changing the consensus seems to be among a lot of the people that I've talked with this morning that uh, above all things, above all, being an entertainer and everything else, that Elvis Presley was a nice man, and that's important. He was Got such a damn burn. beautiful baby. And I'm not just talking about physically, because I think we all can see that. But there's something about him that is just, it absolutely is ingrained in more people's hearts and minds and souls, if you will, than any person that's ever lived on this earth. And... He gave up when he realized he didn't have a dream left. Oh, I miss his smile. had the greatest, warmest smile in the world. And I miss him tremendously. I did everything from flush medicine down the toilet to cry, to beg, to make him realize that he needed to stop being so self-destructive. And I, I couldn't reach him. After nearly five years, I just had to make that very tough decision to leave, with the full knowledge that he probably would not be in this world much longer. He wanted to do the best show he could, but with what he was nothing know, left, the where he was at, he was really burning, 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 and the light was getting dimmer. A guy like Elvis, you know, in your mind, or in a lot of people's mind, he would never die. Elvis can't die, you know, he's too big, he's too great. He, like, he was a great guy. He's just a nice, very nice, gentle person and very generous. I think people always sensed in Elvis, in Elvis this sense of uh, kindness and, and love that he had. I mean, he was also fun, but uh, he was much uh, nicer than I think most people even realize, those who loved him. He was just innately a good person. When he hit the makeup department in the morning, He got coffee for the hairdressers and then the actresses and then the rest of the cast, and then he got his. And he was the kind of person that you knew he wasn't doing it for effect. He was doing it because he thought, mom and apple pie and everything else, that's the way you do it, regardless of what you're getting paid. The one thing about Elvis was that uh, he didn't really understand what made him great. I think that there was a time when he questioned it and he wondered, what am I doing? What do I have? What is this? If Elvis is in hell, then I demand a recount. Because although Elvis clearly was wild, Elvis has brought so much just pure, unadulterated joy into the world. He's got to be in heaven. He's just got to be. Are you, are you satisfied with the image you've established? Uh, uh, well, the image is one thing, and a human being is another. You know, so. How close does it come? How close does the image come to the man? It's it's, it's 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 very hard to live up to an image. I'll put it that way.